24. Cold beer on a Friday night. The things you will miss. If this is your first time coming to the podcast, it's always good for me to remind re, uh, listeners to start at episode one, Blue Light, as it's sort of a serial podcast. You can start anywhere, but it will make more sense starting at episode one. But right back, right now, we'll go back to episode 24, Cold Beer on a Friday Night. For some reason, turning on the grill is one of those moments when old desires return. The sun is shining, the smell of propane or charcoal fills the air, the meat and veggies sizzle on the grate, summer leisure cracks open a door to the past. Then there's another occasion, there's the hubbub of a brew pub, the smell of microbrew, craft beer, there's the clink of pint glasses and beer flights passing by on their way to some other happy table. The kitchen diffuses out smells of fried food, crispy chicken and Cajun fries, nachos and queso on waiters' trays passing by, and the surrounding laughter spills onto my table. Another time and place is if I'm on a stroll through a parking lot where sports tailgaters hold the pregame services under their canopies and hatchback cars and trucks. The beanbags thunk on the plywood and frisbees and footballs sail back and forth. Or later in the grandstand of the stadium, if you, the crowd will roar over an interception or the crack of the bat signals action on the field, and then my senses come alive. It's the smell of the pretzels and hot dogs and popcorn and beer all mingling into a callback, a beckoning for my own re-entry into the game. Or it's something as simple as a song on the radio, and it can come through a melody to remind me of a place or a glimpse or a connection or some kind of attraction, some experience. The verses tip, tip me off to a night in a club or a bar, house party, basement, couch, whatever, where something funny happened or some, some kind of attraction started. The good times, the, the old good times of friendly faces, they come back like apparitions with an invitation to try on the old habit once again. And one last example, a long day in the hot sun after working on a project or, or going for a long run, there's this long thirst that craves a certain kind of satisfaction, one that ice water and soda can't quite fulfill. Physical exhaustion and being sweat depleted is a fine time to think of cold drinks, especially on a Friday night. And then I feel sad and ask, why can't I drink normally? Or alternatively, why can't I just have one? Just one to go with this food or, or mood. You know, a drink goes well with so many things, and that's why most people like to have a drink. We, we relax just thinking about having one. Sometimes instead of feeling sad about it, I get mad and I go further into like a teetotaler mode where I feel upset about other people drinking because I can't do it normally. And from there, it'll devolve into an anger about a culture that pushes and markets drinking so heavily on its citizens. Not just today, but for many thousands of years, there's been an, a virtual idol made out of drinking. In fact, there was a god called Dionysus because people love to drink and alcohol relaxes us, and in moderation, it is wonderful. But there's no such thing as that kind of moderation for lucky, lucky folks like me. So when I was 18, I recall seeing an old picture of uh, an old painting of Hercules out drinking Dionysus. And I, to imagine being so strong at holding your liquor that you could out drink the god of wine was something 
cool to me. That appealed to me when I was fresh out of high school, and quantity certainly meant more than quality at the time. Uh, but it wasn't only the Greeks, and even I mean, even Christian tradition uses wine as central to the sacrament of the Eucharist. And in another example, there's Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana, or Cana, I've heard it said both ways, but I say Cana, in, in his first miracle. And he's creating wine from the water to keep the wedding dance going on late into the night. And this was one of those difficult passages in the Bible. It was always, what's going on here? Why is he creating more liquor for these people, wine? Um, it's even more confusing for someone who struggles with putting the cork back into the bottle because if getting drunk is a sin, then why did Jesus seem to encourage it in this miracle? So I'm gonna co- I'll come back to that at the end of this, but um, that's always been an interesting miracle in the, in the New Testament. So the answer for me is to why, to why I can't drink normal, normally and why can't I have just one is in the historical cycle this kind of cycle of madness that drinking created in my own life. And for those who have the same problem, it's tempting and easy to fool ourselves to set foot once again on a slippery slope called control. And this is the reason I'm skeptical of any books or drugs that say they will help you control drinking. As millions of people who have quit for decades and been successful at it, they stop playing that losing game called control. Most people who are successful at quitting give up on that charade. I've known quite a few people that have gone down that road and slipped. I've done it myself. And surrender to win, which I say all the time, is not just a cute saying. It actually works. And even Annie Grace's book, This Naked Mind, which I really enjoyed, has the subtitle of Control Alcohol. But I suspect that that subtitle is like bait to draw in readers because as it's it's really good bait for people who want to quit drinking but they just want to control it and in the book she more or less says that uh good luck to anyone who attempts to control it um she kind of states pretty clearly to me that uh it's kind of a fool's game but an interesting conversation i've had repeatedly with drinkers who have tried to quit is is this they will say Well, I quit for a month just to prove that I could do it, but then I decided to have a beer on a weekend get-together, and then the next weekend I had a few at a wedding, and then a few weeks later I was kind of back to regular drinking. I recall saying this exact same thing about drinking and about nicotine use as well, and I would quit to prove that I was not addicted. That's a quit in quotes, but the attempt was kind of nebulous and wishy-washy, and full of weasel words, and usually fell off in seriousness rather quickly whenever an event with beer just sprung up in front of me, and I didn't want to feel awkward holding a soda or water. In fact, how many times all of it comes down to us being uncomfortable in our own skin and not wanting to seem awkward, so, you know, you pour a little booze on it, and then you're suddenly comfortable. So that's just like, common to for human nature to want to fit in and feel comfortable and of course um, alcohol does that very well so in fact uh, being at many conferences with lots of engineers and so on or scientists or whoever um, liquor is always the social grease so but what would happen um, after i would fall to peer pressure so easily 
I would then realize that my effort to quit was now over and I would just kind of ignore it. But really, I would pat myself on the back and and kind of a congratulations on my quitting and then just go back to old ways. And the funny thing is that this is what addiction is and does. It's a never-ending self-congratulations on just being yourself and telling you that you're just great, everything's okay. These moments of self-pity struck me in the early days of sobriety when I was like, why can't I have just one? Why can't I be like everybody else for this? When I when I became more serious about removing it from my life entirely, it, it became harder. That was after the pink cloud phase. And the pink cloud phase is when everything looks easy and fun and wonderful. And then um, you get into the more difficult weather around the weakness. And the rainy season starts around six months after you've quit. And, you know, the fact that I couldn't solve this problem on my own, I fully accepted that by, by that time. But the excitement over that discovery eroded with the passage of time and days. It was like wind beating me down. This self-pity became most obvious on Friday nights when so much of my prior life had revolved around buckets of beer. And now I had to fill that time with something else. And you know, listening to rock or country music certainly does not help. And I like both of those genres. I even like rap. Uh, but country music in particular is full-blown celebration of booze. Sometimes I wonder if Nashville is fully owned and operated by the liquor and beer industry. Nearly every other song on the radio venerates liquor or beer to some degree. And I've just proved this again today, turning on the radio and listening to songs by... Um, some of the modern country artists and the ones that don't celebrate drinking, the songs that don't often, they often flip over to family and or God, which makes the, the genre of country a strange combination for me as liquor played the key role in removing God from my life. And the only thing that allowed God's return to my life was the removal of liquor from my life. To me, this is the great paradox of country music, but the celebration of drunkenness seems to be winning out on the radio more in this last 15-20 years. And maybe it always has. I'm just more aware of it now. These triggers I mentioned at the start of this, they are different for everybody and everyone has, has their moments or things that will make them want to do a certain habit. But it took me a while to realize the guises these triggers take on and and the clothing they wear. And in short, they are really just lies that I tell myself. And this dawned on me in an airport after a work conference when I had a rough week. I was tired. Uh, I was around a lot of open bar events, open bar being free liquor, full, full booze, full staff, premium, glamorous location, all free. And my coworkers were lapping it up as we all love to do when it's free. Uh, but that didn't bother me as I'd been around parties and events long enough to know that I could have fun without the buzz. And that's one of the first things you have to learn to do. But truly, I've realized that I, I have more fun now at events uh, without without it, than, and I can be more honest with people than ever before. And no one cares that I'm not drinking. I think that took about a year to really believe. No one, No one gives a hoot. And they don't even notice if you have a glass of 7-Up instead of a gin and tonic. Even if they do know it's 7-Up, no one cares. Plus, anyone that pressures 
me about having a drink usually reacts very openly when I tell them I quit. And it's so common for the response to come back as, oh, I should do that myself for a while, or I have a friend that's dry for three years, or wow, that's great. And rarely do I ever hear what I once feared, which was, oh, come on, you pansy, just let's do a shot. You know, you know, people who are going to give you a hard time about not drinking. It's extremely rare. But when I do hear that, and I do, I can see usually that that person is in a kind of not facing up to a reality of their own. They're in, they're going to have their own battle at some point, but I don't say anything about that because um, they may sort of know that. And that's why they're being um, brash about someone else not drinking. So you just kind of let that go. But the ones that push it on others may be having the same issue that I do is what I'm trying to say. And how do I know that? Well, because I kind of like to do that when I was drinking, if my friends weren't, I wanted to peer pressure them into joining me because that was, then it was making it okay for everybody. Uh, being around drinkers stopped bothering me, I would say four or five, four years ago, maybe. And I find it much more awkward if people don't drink because I am around. In fact, that's the strangest feeling where somehow my demon causes them to tiptoe around when they are not dealing with what I'm dealing with. That's, it's if my behavior, my struggle is causing you to feel awkward, well, then I'm making it awkward for you and it shouldn't be. I'm fine being around drunk people to the point that I really don't care, except I won't stay out late with them because I have no interest in ever closing down a pub again. Uh, even when I'm designated driver for someone, they're going home early. So that's <laughs> that's one of the rules. Uh, back to my point about the airport bar, though, because I had a moment there, and this experience I thought was kind of interesting for someone who's maybe interested in quitting. But I was sitting by myself after a long week at the conference, and at the bar, uh, the tables around me, there were groups of men and women who were mingling and laughing over drinks. It was, I think, a Thursday night and kind of the day people are going home from work work trips. And like many a business traveler in my past life, I enjoyed knocking down a pint or two before boarding a flight because it pretty much put me to sleep. You know, in the lap of a craft beer, you can just lay down and go to sleep. Like uh, that, this was one of those triggers like grilling or going to a sports event or sitting in a restaurant or hearing a party song. Sitting in the airport was another trigger for drinking. Feeling tired and slightly upset from a difficult week, I would want to enter into the relaxation and, and, quote, fun of the others who were drinking. So somehow, someway, a light dawned on me that my memory about those airport cocktails were lies and fibs that I told myself to justify the flaw that wanted to get out of me because it wanted to get out of me that day in the airport. And you can feel it, and anyone who has desires that they're trying to stop or they've tried to tuck away and hide will know that when they try to come back you'll recognize them but they're hard to uh, predict when and where and there was an old twilight zone episode i'm not old enough to have seen the originals but i always i like the old shows uh, kind of like Black Mirror before Black Mirror, uh, the Netflix show. But there was an old Twilight Zone episode called The Howling Man, where the devil was held in an old monastery, and he was contained in a cell that he could clearly escape. He could pretty much just walk out of it by himself, but for some reason did not or could not. And it, as it turns out, he could only escape if someone invited him out, 
or let him out. And this is, I think vampires have a similar thing at your doorway or something. But, and so the, the, the devil, he would howl, he would howl in this prisons, in this cell, this like poorly secured prison cell until some sympathetic person came along to hear his, his sob story. And in the episode, a traveler comes along and the traveler is, he doesn't believe the monk who is telling him that it's the devil trapped there. So this traveler falls for the devil's story about the injustices that this monk has put on him. And of course, then the man, the traveler, lets the devil out, thinking that the devil is not real and the monk is insane. Well, this pretty much sums up what I realized in the airport that day, that through much work, I had contained this demon in a cell, and now it was howling to get out. And I was feeling sympathy for this howling call and drawn to listen to its reasons for being released once again. This is exactly what addiction does. It howls in you. Smokers know this very well. I think smoking is as hard to quit as anything. I, maybe the hardest, I don't know. But I still hear this howling, and it's not for beer anymore, but it's for food. I mean, but I've never been arrested for overeating. So there is always some kind of howling, uh, and the howling about drinking was the worst kind. And now that I have it contained in the cell, I am the only one that can let it out again. So I have to be the one to go listen to it and say, Yes, you can come back out. Let's 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 do this again. This it's a terrible idea, but I uh, the howling easily fools you. So this calling or trigger or feeling of need is something I did not connect to a to a very old. Um, I, I didn't connect those emotions until that day in the airport, where I realized that it was something known for a very long time. And the old name was concupiscence, which um, is a fun word to say, and that you just don't hear a lot anymore. But this is uh, this is something from uh, the church where it says, concupiscence can refer to any intense form of human desire. And of course, we all have various intense forms of human desire. Okay, back to the quote. Christian theology has given it a particular meaning, and it's the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of the human reason. St. Paul identifies it with rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. And concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin, and it unsettles man's moral faculties, and without being in, its, uh, in itself an offense, it inclines man to commit sins. So this idea of an appetite or a desire contrary to my reason became devastatingly apparent, as I knew from past experience where acting on the desire led. So here's what I mean by that. When I actually thought about my romanticized ideas about having beers in the airport bar, I remembered those pre-flight beers as some kind of positive action or thing that occurred. What I chose to forget was sitting on the plane, I would feel bloated and dumb for drinking because it was never just one pint. It was always two, maybe three. I remember driving home and being grumpy on arrival because I had come down from the buzz during the flight. And I remembered all the times that I just felt tired the next day from the effort my body needed to push out that poison. As I'd been exercising regularly, at the time of that day in the airport when I realized this, I knew that all of those, I'll just have one moments, were always what derailed any fitness or health goals that I had. 
inevitably inevitably the i'll have just one leads to more and anyone that's ever gone to a bar with best friends knows that's how the wildest nights start i'll just have one let's just have one yeah we'll just have one and get out of here that's how the slippery slope starts because the first step is not very slippery it seems really safe so like others who try to prove they can quit for a very short period or whatever they end up right back in the same spot over and over and over again and it's just so easy to let out this howling man this howling that's just calling to you there's a story about a man named jim uh in in the big book from alcoholics anonymous who had who had already messed up his life he was like a chronic drinker and he'd repeatedly done it and one more foul up was going to cost him his family and here i'll just read this story because I always thought this was interesting. This is in chapter three of the big book from AA. And so it goes, yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. And this is his story. I came to work on a Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the brass, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive to the country and see one of my prospects On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside diner where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for for at this place, so it was familiar and I'd been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. And still, no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but I reassured I was reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and I poured it into more milk. And that didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And that's the end of the, the reading. But I don't know who would want to put milk or whiskey into milk, but that's part of the uh, brain tricks that we play on ourselves. And so Jim lost his family. And Jim is one of millions of men who have done this, and women. This story and my story is as ancient as humankind's discovery of crushing and fermenting grapes. In Moby Dick, the blacksmith story is a lot like Jim's story. Uh, This is in chapter 112, I think. And the blacksmith has everything. He has everything in life until he chooses to start drinking. And soon he has nothing. And once his life is destroyed, he longs for death, but not wanting to commit suicide, he goes to sea with this whaling ship, just like Ishmael, the narrator of the book. And as a side note, Ishmael, the narrator, describes the same spiritual wandering or brokenness in the very first paragraph of the novel of Moby Dick, although his his suffering and, and wandering doesn't come from drinking. It comes from a general malaise caused by the big empty, as I call it. And I love how Melville describes the entrance of drinking into the blacksmith's life as a burglar and a demon. So here's chapter 112 of Moby Dick. The blacksmith had been an artisan of famed excellence, and with plenty to do, he owned a house and garden, 
embraced a youthful, loving wife and three blithe, ruddy children. Every Sunday, he went to a cheerful-looking church planted in a grove. But one night, under cover of darkness and further concealed in a most cunning disguisement, a desperate burglar slid into his happy home and robbed them of everything. And darker yet to tell, the blacksmith himself did ignorantly conduct this burglar into his family's heart. It was the bottle conjurer. Upon opening that fatal cork, forth flew the fiend and shriveled up his home. So there's some 19th century language in there that I, is kind of funny, like the bottle conjurer from Herman Melville. It's kind of a jarring and funny uh, statement, and it seems very dated, but it's not inaccurate. You see alcohol repeatedly destroying families and for generations, not just one generation, multiple, as it conjures up, it is a conjurer, it brings up bad voodoo in so many fathers that they can't get out of it, and it's like this uh, curse. I wonder, I wonder how many men today have followed the same path chasing a high, and it's, it's not just drinking, it's drugs or porn or sex or whatever, like they're chasing a high and it's, it's taking them somewhere they don't want to go. They think they want to go there, but they don't. And I have taken things as close to the edge of ruin as possible myself. And that's literally why this podcast slash blog exists. And I always say, why did Peter sink? Well, because he let the howling man out. Jim from the AA book, let the howling man out. The blacksmith and Moby Dick, let the howling man out. Why did they do why did he do that? Why did why did I do that? And it's because Jim took his focus off of what was important. I did too. So did the blacksmith. We all forgot about God. And the variety of addictions makes no difference in this circle of insanity. The pursuit and the outcome is the same. And people may not go to an asylum today, but the trail of wreckage this behavior leaves can create a personal asylum to live inside. The howling man is famously cunning and baffling. He calls upon and converts us like the Pied Piper in an instant. How easily we fall for the lies that we tell ourselves and act in ways that go directly against our better judgment and reason. And I'm truly stunned at how easily I can be pulled or pushed to act against my reason. What I've come to realize, and, and with grace I can remember for many years to come, is that the desires and triggers will be back. Those desires will never fade completely. They will forever call, and, and I, if I don't pick up the phone, then I won't answer. That's the only way I let this howling man out if I'm listening for it. And so this is not something that can be solved really in, in my heart, not by myself. And I, I'm, I'm the only one that can let the problem start again, even in the most small way. And that is to choose to let this chaos and very real sin back into my life. So it's not, it's not bad to have this happen. It's just bad to act upon it. That's the, that's the problem. It's going to happen. There's no stopping that. It's a matter of if I allow it, if I let this howling man or whatever you want to call it back in into the world. I recall someone asking me, what would be the thing that pulled you back to drinking when we were talking about this with another ex-drinker? And I, me I immediately thought of going out in a blaze of glory in one rip-roaring wild time. And that's a common thing 
uh, people will think about is some last hurrah that goes way beyond the, anything before it. There's a Tim McGraw and a Faith Hill song that appears to have been written by someone with a good grasp on the struggle of addictions and this idea of going out with a bang. And it's um, and the lyrics are uh, from Tim McGraw saying, I want to drink that shot of whiskey. I want to smoke that cigarette. I want to smell that sweet addiction on my breath. And later he says, you know, some cowboys like me go out like that, as in like go out being to death. Uh, what's he talking about? What's Tim McGraw talking about? Uh, and he's romancing his old times as the good times. And he's dressing that pig up and he's putting lipstick on it and he's giving it a big kiss, pretending those days were all magical and fun until the mean old world took away his joy. It's a pity party. And I, I love this song, don't get me wrong. Um, he's thinking of the escape and wanting to ride it out into the sunset one last time and to disappear from the struggle of this world. And it's all a lie. He's invented an ideal escape because he wants to feel young and free because he's confused being drunk with being alive. And he's confused the cigarette with being being part of being alive when what it really made him was boring and imprisoned. And that's the, that's the trick. If, if you don't realize that being, <laughs> once you're sober and you're around a lot of drunk people, you'll realize what I'm talking about. It's just not that fun. But um, of course, you're in a completely different world, but you get to wake up and feel good the next day. That's probably the most amazing thing of all. And, or maybe this is all just what I realized in the airport bar on that winter day. And, you know, you could call it sour grapes, like, uh, oh, I can't do that, so I'm going to say that it's not fun. But if that's what it is, I, I'm fine with that. That's, uh, that's A-OK. -okay. <laughs> For myself, I can recall many years ago sitting in Munich in Germany at the Hocker Shore Brewery near the grounds of Oktoberfest and thinking it was like the field of dreams but for beer. And I could picture Ray Liotta saying, is this heaven? And then Kevin Costner would answer, nine, this is Bavaria, you know, something like that. It was just, it was like the uh, Disney world of beer places. And likewise, I recall being at a Swiss Oktoberfest at a small town somewhere in Switzerland, I don't even remember the name of it, and looking around at the scene of giant beer steins and waitresses and push-up bras and the brass bands and singing songs and toasting Prost! And I thought to myself, this must be the closest thing to heaven on earth as everyone was so happy and full of pure joy and full of so much, well, liters of beer. And not only that, but I will think of music festivals when I was young, where you park the car or the camper, and immediately you can hear the music and the bass from far away. It's summer, and it's hot, and you got coolers with ice, and it's all good times just waiting. It was the anticipation of the night. It could be felt and tasted like the sting of whiskey or gin on your tongue. The sun would just start to sink, and it meant the night's possibilities were just beginning, and it was time to shut down the work week and trade for the time to get rowdy and stupid. And with a gang of friends of the same mindset, the music and the summer night felt like some kind of a heaven. And in both of those heavens, what I conveniently leave out is the next morning, the day after, the things I said, and worst, things I might not have even remembered. So while, yes, 
there are good things about those nights. There was much more than just the sunset and the music or the German waitresses. I was just remembering the setting, but I had forgotten the plot. And there was so much more to the story than a fleeting feeling about my arrival or a moment in time where I felt the Gemütlichkeit or the good cheer of the German beer hall. For others, those things could be enjoyed year after year, and still can, but no longer for me, because I could not quit drinking once I started, and I know that will happen again if I ever start again. Thus the saying, do not trust your feelings, stays with me, as my feelings are the things that listen to the howling man and want to let him free, to let him out of the prison. There's so much more to life without the howling man, and I can still enjoy my memory of a Munich night or a street festival hoedown. I, don't, I know that there's no going back to those days, or at least not in the same way. And that is the journey, I suppose, that we all get to walk in this world and to find out what we are built for and what we must avoid. And somewhere, a baby is being born right now that will get to walk these same paths that I did, that we all do, and he will grow up hearing advice of older, wiser people, and if he's anything like me, he will just ignore that advice and go out and find it the hard way. And William Blake once said, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom, which sounds really good, but there is a much better path to wisdom than that. So I would recommend not taking the road of excess, but uh, people will take it anyway. So as I mentioned, I would come back to this, uh, the wedding feast at Cana, the first miracle of Jesus. Uh, Dostoevsky has a chapter called this uh, in the Brothers Karamazov, where a char- character is considering this miracle. He's thinking about the, the miracle of the turning wa- uh, water into wine. And he says, the first miracle he worked was to bring men happiness, to help men's gladness. He who loves men loves their happiness. And that's, you know, very true where Jesus does bring this joy to the wedding, to the people. Um, weddings back then might have been quite a bit different than from today where they were like two or three days instead of just one one uh, f- four-hour wedding dance bash where we have nowadays, you know, where people might drink to excess. But um, at, he was also responding to the request of his mother, Mary, to help the people at the wedding. And um, the people at the wedding, just like us today, had free will, and the guests needed to make their own decisions on whether to drink to excess. So um, Jesus isn't there as a life coach at the wedding that night, but as the world's greatest guest, who just happens to be beginning his ministry. There's there's a, much to be interpreted regarding the wedding feast at Cana, way more than I can go into here, but for people like me who can't hold their liquor, the fact that free wine is present does not outweigh a virtue called temperance. And if anything, as Jesus always shows us how to live in these stories, he's having a good time at the wedding without getting drunk. (laughs) That's probably the main takeaway for uh, people like me. But the point for the, the other point to take away here is this. Or maybe it's the same point, I guess. If you can't have fun without beer or liquor in your hand, in your in your stomach, you're not right you're not you're not yet in the right headspace to be among the party crowd. And other people do not, should not need to change their ways to accommodate your struggle, but it really helps you in the start 
it really helps you if you have somebody to help you um, start your lifestyle in that other direction. But you can't, you never are the king and controller of the world for other people. They're going to do whatever. That's not your job to fix them. And that's kind of the whole problem in the, in, with drinkers in general anyway, is the want, the want to have control. That's what you need to let go of to make progress. And the miracle around drinking and parties is that at some point you won't care if someone drinks right next to you. One other thing I'll say, there's a, there's a, someone told me once for every year you drank, you have to give a year of sobriety back to those who, who stood by you through all those years. And after however many years, 15 or 20, then you're even. That's actually a good way to think of it because it takes away that like, look at me, I'm being righteous now. I'm not drinking. Why aren't they, why aren't they uh, supporting me more? Why aren't they doing this? Well, it's because you burned them down for about 10 or 15 years yourself. So you got to you got to answer that call back um, and put in the time and be humble about it. Um, as far as hanging around a lot of drinking, one thing I would say is, well, there's a saying, and it says, if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you'll probably get a haircut. And I, this is one of these abstract sayings you get from uh, people who've quit drinking, and you're like, what, what the hell are they talking about? But it, it sounds old-fashioned because I don't know how many people still go to barbershops and who hang around barbershops, but I know that that does happen. But uh, the meaning is that if you're trying to quit drinking and you're spending a lot of time in bars while trying to quit drinking, sooner or later, you're going to have a drink. You're going to get that. If you're in the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. If you're in the bar, you're going to have a drink. So if you spend all your time with your old drinking buddies, you will at some point most likely have a drink. And it's just like Jim's story where suddenly I thought maybe I'd put some whiskey into the milk. Well, that just suddenly occurred to him out of the blue where that had not occurred to him at all. Uh, you know, he had no intention of doing that. It will come up in an instant and it'll, it'll tap you on the shoulder and surprise you and your, all of your willpower will crumble unless you're clinging to your higher power at all times because that's where you really get through those days when that suddenly I want to put whiskey in my milk kind of idea <laughs> occurs and it sounds really crazy but I don't think uh, Jim in that story is actually very different from most people who have those moments like I had in the airport where the pity is for myself wanting to go back to it so to work away from the lifestyle separation requires choices that are hard and often means losing some friendships. In fact, some people will tell you you have to lose all of your old friendships if you truly want to quit drinking. I had a hard time with that. I was frustrated about that the idea itself because I did. I have a lot of old friends that I am not willing to let go of. Um, but I do know people say that, and many believe it, that you to make that change, it takes separation from a lot of old things. I even know people... And I did this for a while, stopped listening to the old music I loved because of how close the association was to the desire to fall into old patterns. And I'm talking about like Nirvana and Sublime and Metallica, all those music, all the songs that I really liked when we were going to parties or country songs, you know, like Garth Brooks, whatever, uh, just just songs that were fun. They were fun songs to have a, to be at a party with, you know, so um, and everybody's got their playlist you know uh the party crowd will never go away and cold beer on a friday night will always sound good the key is to keep your own side of the street clean and let others worry about theirs that's a hard thing to do keep your own side of the street clean worry let the others worry about theirs and someday you'll no longer care 
you know, you'll probably care, but the, it's, if, you're, if you're caring too much, that means you're not letting go. Uh, you will even watch tipsy or drunk people slur their speech with amusement, and you won't want to join them. Um, you, but you, before that happens, you have to endure some hard days and nights to reach that rung on the ladder where you're no longer uh, wanting to just jump into the crowd and be like everybody else. You'll also get to bed much earlier, and you'll feel good every single morning. And that may be the most unsung wonder of deliverance from a lifestyle of using alcohol. Every morning you wake up, like the pregame cheer from the Dillon Panthers on TV show Friday Night Lights, where the coach would say, clean heart, clear mind, can't lose. That's literally what life is like once you kick it. This is a responsibility for for us with this problem. It's a burden for us. You know, it's a cross to bear, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the gospel, the fact that it has buckets of wine at this wedding, it doesn't get us off the hook, not by a long shot. And here are some tidbits of food for thought on why that's the case from my favorite book, the Catechism. But it's talking about the virtue of temperance. And it says, temperance disposes us to avoid every kind of excess. That's the, the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, or medicine, meaning drugs. And here's one for drinking and driving. It says, those incur grave guilt who, by drunkenness or a love of speed, endanger their own and other safety on the road, at sea, or in the air. <clears throat> yep, that's me. Uh, there's no... F- free pass just because there is a wedding party at Cana and it's the Old Testament New Testament they both they both say no temperance is a virtue Um, we want to nod at ourselves and get you know let ourselves have um, a little fun but on the path to virtue you really have to stick to it and if you already know you can't control you're drinking from a history of excess and not just drinking I'm talking about other there's plenty of vices you can substitute here the house always wins in the end. You can't beat the house. And that's what that's what these vices do. They the odds are stacked against you. They're not in your favor. So one more thing about temperance here. Uh it's the temperance is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. The, in the Old Testament, it says, do not follow your base desires, but restrain your appetites. And in the New Testament, it's called moderation or sobriety. We ought to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world. Human virtues acquired by education, by deliberate acts, and by a perseverance ever renewed in repeated efforts are purified and elevated by divine grace. With God's help, with God's help, they forge character and give facility in the practice of the good. And the virtuous man is happy to practice them. And the key thing in all of that, this, that's from the Catechism, verse, uh, paragraph 1809 and 1810, is that it's talking about with God's help, they forge your character. And it's true. That's what, it's not, you cannot do that alone, no matter what someone tells you, no matter what modern uh, things you'll find online. I would not recommend doing it alone. Uh, Most men have something calling to them, something that wants to get back into their world, you know, to turn us away from virtue, allow us to feel defiant instead of obedient. For some reason, we always think obedience means like we're some kind of prisoner, 
Um, and it's funny is that it's the opposite. Like the obedience gives you freedom. It's the defiance that is the prison. And to open that beer or to go to that website or to hit up an old flame online or to eat a whole box of cereal in a single sitting. Uh, actually, the last one is just my, that's my new problem is cereal. But as I've mentioned before, I have much to learn and miles to go. It's very easy to write about virtues or to talk about virtues, and it's difficult to live them out in the real world. But that's the goal. And as I seem to like goals, I'd rather have a positive public goal than a secret negative goal. So con both confession, religious confession, and psychotherapy alike claim that you must name the thing that ails you to deal with it properly. Naming the problem is one thing. Letting go of control is next, and that is done through a higher power and not through medication. I tried that. Higher power beats medication. Removing the cause of my sinking means asking for God's help, and that is the right step toward daily perseverance, moderation, and steady sobriety.